welcome to the Families Voices podcast. Our podcast today is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The Family Voices podcast is a series of conversations with families of young children with a developmental delay or disability. We aim to build parents' knowledge, skills and confidence in navigating early childhood services and supports. The podcast is also an opportunity for families to share their stories. This podcast series is brought to you by Early Childhood Intervention Australia, VicTAS. We're a membership-based organisation that's proudly worked alongside families, practitioners and other organisations that provide supports for young children with disability or developmental delay and their families for over 35 years. To learn more about the podcast and our organisation, please visit ekiavic.org.au. Hello, I'm Kerry Bull and I'm so pleased to be joined today by Stacey. Hi, Stacey. Hi, Kerry. Um, lovely to be here with you. Oh, no, great to have you. And we might just get started, Stacey, by you telling us a little bit about your family. Sure. Um, so I am my husband, Mark, and I are parents to three kids. So we've got Sammy, who's 11. Alex is just about to turn 10 in I think it's 13 days now, which I know because he's been counting down for at least 100 days. <laughs> so he's <laughs> almost 10. Um, and then my daughter, Annalise, who is eight years old. And we live in Brisbane. So until recently, we lived in Sydney. And um, for various reasons, including just a lifestyle change, we relocated to Brisbane. And that's where we are now. Uh, so you've been experiencing really difficult weather circumstances in the last little while. We have. We personally have, um, you know, we've been really fortunate and we haven't been impacted, but um, many of our neighbours have been. But it's, yeah, I think the silver lining, like I guess there were so many silver linings with COVID, but I think it's just been really nice to see the community come together and the community mm -hmm. spirit and just to be part of that. Yeah, it's quite uplifting, isn't it, to see community, how people treat each other so well in, in difficult circumstances. Yeah, oh, my, my best to you and, and all of the families up there managing the floods and so on. Stacey, I understand that your middle child, Alex, had some health problems when he was a, a newborn, and then you became increasingly worried about his development in those early weeks of his life. Can you tell us a bit about that time? Yes, Alex was, um, he was born with a heart defect and when he was a baby, he had um, open heart surgery. That was a, it was a really difficult time for our family and, um, you know, we, we'd had no experience with the healthcare system and didn't really understand what was happening. Um, and it wasn't long after that. So because we were connected with a paediatrician through his um, need for his heart surgery, it, we actually got identified that there were some concerns with his development when he was really young. So he was probably about two months old when we just noticed that he wasn't um, meeting some of his early milestones. And I think as well, because we have a son that was one year ahead, we, we just knew things weren't 
quite the same. Mm. At that point, we weren't sure if it was because of, you know, his health concerns and what he'd been through. But we were really fortunate that we had just the most incredible developmental pediatrician who just really took on board all of our concerns. And I still remember that appointment with her. We spent almost two hours with her and she was just so thorough in just, you know, investigating, looking at, um, you know, listening to us. She then referred us on to um, specialists. We underwent um, many different assessments and tests, et cetera. At that point, they just thought he was delayed because of his um, heart defect and that he was diagnosed with developmental delay. They said he possibly could catch up. They weren't quite sure at that point. And it wasn't until he was, oh goodness, I think it was probably about three and a half years old that we received the diagnosis of Williams syndrome, which is a deletion of chromosome seven. Um, and funnily enough, our cardiologist who sees many kids with Williams syndrome and I knew many other families that had a child with Williams syndrome but because of his heart condition it's not one that's actually been known to children with Williams syndrome so no one picked it up no. and he didn't have some of the typical facial characteristics but he's grown into it as he's gotten older mm -hmm. um, but yeah so we were quite late getting that diagnosis but we were very early in our journey um, identified to have a delay which then kind of instigated early intervention services so from a very young age yeah so you you entered the health system when he was um, born but then you pretty quickly entered the early intervention service system as well so there was a, a heck of a lot to navigate there but it sounds like you had a a really supportive pediatrician who listened to you yeah she really she listened to us. She she explained things to us. Mm -hmm. So she really took the time to, you know, she acknowledged that we didn't have that knowledge of the healthcare system. We were overwhelmed trying to navigate all of the different services. So she took the time to explain things to us mm -hmm. and then also to follow through by emailing information or resources to us or directing us to where to find um, appropriate supports. But I think in particular, taking the time to explain what was happening so yeah. we understood made a really big difference in just, yeah. I guess, navigating a very foreign system. Yeah, because you were really needing to navigate the health system and then very quickly move into navigating the early intervention system, which works very differently. Can you tell us a bit about your experience with early intervention? Yes, that started very early for us. So um, Alex was about three months old and um, our paediatrician gave us a list of recommendations of um, you know therapists that we could reach out to. So Armed with that list, I called everybody to see if I could get the first available appointment. And at that point, I just, I had no idea what, you know, what even was the purpose of therapy. Like Alex was, I think about four months old. I didn't, I didn't know what an occupational therapist, for example, was actually meant to be doing with Alex. So I guess at that point, my priority was um, just to get started ASAP and to do as much as possible. So I heard from so many people that, you know, early intervention is critical and um, it's what makes a difference to your child. So I really felt that sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, my focus was on 
doing more therapy sessions. So how many therapy sessions can I get into? You know, at that point we had no funding. So we were self-funding all of this. Um, you know, I had no idea about kind of free programs, supports that were available. I just thought the more therapy sessions um, I could book into, the better, you know, Alex, you know, it's going to help Alex, it's going to fix him. So we had a really... Um, I guess a different a different way of approaching things back then, mm. and like at that time we were just going along two sessions, um, following the therapist's lead, and um, you know any any priorities that were identified. So I wasn't really aware of what my role was other than to drive Alex to those appointments, mm. um, and you know, while I knew I had to replicate therapy outside of the session, well, at that point, that's what I thought the purpose was. I didn't, um, you know, understand how that therapy actually could help or how it could fit in, um, into our life. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's just reflecting back. Those were really, um, really stressful times and, it was, it was exhausting. I, like many families I speak to um, in Sydney, would drive all around Sydney to go to what we considered the best therapists. And I, I remember um, my, my oldest son had just started preschool and every single Monday I would drive to drop him off at preschool. I would then drive to one side of Sydney on the Eastern suburbs for a 30 minute speech therapy appointment. I would then drive down to Southwest Sydney for a behavioral therapist appointment and then go and pick up my son for preschool. And that was just our days. Like that was what our life looked like. I would, you know, I had a, my daughter was um, under one. So I would try and time our appointments that, um, you know, it coincided with a sleep time in between that long drive before therapy and it was it was so unenjoyable my kids were miserable I didn't realize how miserable I was but it was um it was tiring yeah yeah uh I'm tired hearing about it (laughs) just the the sheer efforts of managing all of that with three little children and it sounds like you're thinking back at those times as kind of not not enjoyable as you say and tiring and 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 you you're really talking about that at that time the therapy was almost a goal in in and of itself that, that you you thought that just going to therapy was the whole point of it. Absolutely, and uh, I think when I you know when I think back to all of that therapy we did, I also think about all of the kind of typical things that we missed out on. So uh-huh. you know we didn't go to a play group, we didn't you know we didn't just go to the park. So we were just thinking about therapy services and not only did Alex miss out on those typical opportunities my daughter did as well because then she never got to go to those things as a as a newborn and as a you know as a toddler so I think not only you know did it impact on him but it just impacted on our whole family like I had no friends (laughs) my life was just about therapy like the only people I was talking to some weeks were my therapist so it was um it just it impacted our whole family yeah that's so profound Stacey talking about what you were all missing out on about those kind of normal family opportunities was that your whole early intervention experience we were really lucky so I guess what happened with us so you know I I just shared how I used to um, I used to take my daughter along. 
in the early days, I used to take my son along as well. And they used to come along to sessions. And at that point, we had a therapist who, um, who placed all of the focus on Alex. So he was, I think he was like two years old at this point. And we would go along to the session and we were working on some language goals you know, she would be asking him to like sit at the table for 30 minutes, which I think, you know, even I reflect on Alex, you know, five years old, that wasn't easy. And um, like my other kids weren't included in the session. So not only did I, you know, not get to kind of be involved in that session, I was trying to minimize the impact for the therapist on having my other other kids along and then you know they're bored so I'm trying to um trying to please them so at that point I thought that was a typical experience um not only that I think also then replicating that at home so then we tried to replicate that approach at home where I was then trying to do my kind of therapy homework of getting Alex to sit for 30 minutes and work on tasks which was really unenjoyable and just not realistic at all um, but then I was really fortunate. I think Alex was about three years old and, um, I heard of a local early intervention organization just by chance, um, in a Facebook community group. And the thing that, um, I guess that made me go there initially, cause I didn't know about you know, different ways of, um, approaching therapy was that they were funded to offer, therapy services for free to children with disability so at that point we were self-funded this was you know before the NDIS so I um, connected them with this early intervention organization and started accessing occupational therapy services and this was the first time we were um, introduced to a key worker so Mm -hmm. OT was a key worker who um worked with us to coordinate some of our different services and care, but to support our whole family. Um, And they also took on some of the roles of what maybe a speech pathologist would. And, you know, they incorporated other goals that we were working on into their session. And she was the first person that not only encouraged me to bring my other kids along, but actually set up all of her sessions for my three children. So... Mm -hmm. If we would go to the therapy center, she'd have three seats there. She'd have activities out for all of them. But in her planning, she prepared for all of my kids. And then she would also sometimes come to our house and then just use like whatever was in our house, whatever, you know, Alex's interest was. And this this helped us in that session, but it also helped us to embed all of those activities just into our everyday life. So she was... um, really she would really promote and this is one thing that I really love that I've really that I've taken into everything we do she didn't use all of those expensive therapy games and activities she would have you know pipe cleaners and play-doh and beads and things really inexpensive um, tools that you could use to achieve the same goal um, as, you know, some of those $60 equivalents. And that was great because that's something that we were able to really easily replicate at home. Um, And we had a massive box. I think I spent like $100 and we had this huge therapy box of um, pipe cleaners, you know, tongs. And my kids loved it. They did not think that they were doing any therapy calls. They just thought it was like the funnest thing ever. Mm -hmm. So she really was able to, 
I guess, turn what was, um, I'm not going to say unenjoyable experience, but it was a stressful experience of therapy into something that my kids just thought was, um, was play. Yeah, you have painted such a fantastic picture of two very different experiences with early intervention. Thanks for describing me in that way. I think we're kind of in the room with you, kind of um, being with with your three children and seeing what it meant for your other children um, and for you uh, and for Alex as well. Definitely the beginning of our um, family-centred early intervention experience and just starting to learn that there is a different way and a better way. Uh What do you mean by family-centred, Stacey? For us, family-centred has just meant that it's recognised that as Alex's family, we know him best and that we are the ones that are there beyond the therapy appointments. We... You know, the therapy appointment could be one hour a week, two hours a week, but, you know, we are there beyond that. And it's not just me and my husband, it's also my kids as well. So it considers their needs, it considers our whole family needs, but it really takes into account the strength of our family and incorporated my kids. It was, I think as well, what it, what it really meant to us was that we it really shifted us into becoming partners with our therapists and not just, um, I guess, recipients of services. Yeah, that's a a good way of describing it. A lot of families on the Family Voices podcast have talked about this issue of being partners and how powerful it's been for them when they've worked with therapists who develop a partnership. Mm. Mm. Definitely. And really value the voice of the parent. I think, you know, there might be typical developmental milestones and it might, you know, logically seem that that is something that you should be working on with your child. But, you know, family-centered practice has really meant that it's taken into consideration what's important for our family, but also our lifestyle and our own family values and really put that at the forefront. So you've talked about family-centred practices being focused on your strengths, your needs as a family, your values as a family, and incorporating that into the things that you're wanting to achieve. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like you're talking about that, doing that in an enjoyable way too that you can all be part of. Definitely. I think when I reflect back on those times, now that Alex is at school and things look a little bit different, um, it was actually enjoyable. Like I will say it was enjoyable and it wasn't just looking at um, earlier. I talked about how in those early days, therapy became our life. Our life revolved around therapy. Once we started to think about therapy differently, it was just something that was embedded into our everyday. So it wasn't something that we had to do or set aside time for. It was just something we were able to, you know, find those natural opportunities or, you know, we'd be at the playground. So our therapist would say, you know, your goal is to strengthen Alex's hands to write. Don't have him sitting at the table doing hand strengthening activities because she, she just knew that wasn't conducive to our lifestyle. So she told us go to the um, playground and um, practice rock climbing or, you know, look for, she gave us ideas for just different strategies that worked in with our life. So it's, it's never really felt like over the past few years in particular that we're doing therapy. Mm. And 
I'm, I laugh now because I am the main person that goes along to the appointments. And I remember my husband once said to me, I haven't seen you do therapy with us lately. Uh And I said to him, that's actually amazing. The fact that you haven't noticed that because I'm doing so much of it, but I'm embedding it into like, when I have a conversation with him or when we're walking to the car, like I'm always looking for those natural moments. So the fact that he didn't even notice that we're doing therapy, I thought, wow, that's a tick actually. That's a weird. Yeah. 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 I I get that. And and it sounds like in essence that your early experience was about that your family was fitting in with therapy, but your later experience was that therapy or Alex's learning and was fitting in with your family. Yeah, that's exactly it. it. It flipped it right right over. Stacey, you mentioned that Alex is in school now and you, you said that things look a bit different now that he's in school. Can you describe a bit for us about what, what services you, you utilise now? So, yeah, Alex is in year four now. Services do look very different for us since he started school. So, um I, you know, I, I'm just thinking about when before you said about therapy is not the goal. And I remember when Alex was, I think he was about four years old and I did a, a goal setting session with a, um, with a peer worker. And I was choosing goals like, you know, learning to ride his scooter, you know, building friendships, learning to draw, et cetera. And I got to the end of the planning session and I said, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. I didn't even write down speech therapy. And then... <laughs> The person facilitating the session to me said, oh, okay, like kind of just was curious and asked a few questions to um, determine if I thought that was a goal. And that was actually the first time that I realised, oh, my gosh, like therapy is not a goal. And seeing my goals written out, I was able to then, I guess, reframe the way I think of it and to look at what our goals are and what we want Alex to achieve in life and think about how can therapy support these goals? Mm -hmm. Can therapy support these goals? There are some goals that we don't need therapy, like a therapist um, expertise. There were were different supports or there were things that we could do within our own family. But that was um, one of my, I guess, aha moments and a real turning point for us. And that was good timing because it did happen before school. So we really switched to a capacity building coach type model where we started to think about our therapists as experts and they have, you know, we still use therapists um, very regularly and I'm sure we'll continue to for a very long time, but we've started to think about how can we use the expertise of the therapist to support Alex's goals or to support our family goals? And how can we draw upon that expertise? So we also took that approach into school. So we've tried to really, um, I think in school, we, we didn't want Alex to be withdrawn from class to do therapy. We didn't want therapists going in and sitting next to him. So we thought, what you know we met with the teacher we had lots of um, planning sessions and looked at what were some of the areas that you know because of Alex's disability the teacher could use some support and then that was where we how we used our therapist so our therapist would go into the school and coach the teacher so they never went in and withdrew Alex Um, they would go in at appropriate times and provide some coaching to the teachers to build their skills so they could support Alex 
Um, and that also looked like emails or phone calls. So I didn't always have to be in person. Sometimes I would record videos in our therapy session to support, to send to, um, to send to the teacher. We also did that with our, um, you know, we've used therapy assistants over the years. We've had, we've had many wonderful therapy assistants as well. So again, thought of how can our therapists build their capacity to be able to support Alex at home and for some longer periods to just really work on some of those um, goals that require a little bit more intense support. Yeah. Can, can I unpack that a little bit? Because that's been so informative, Stacey. You're talking about capacity building and what I'm understanding you, you're talking about there is that you were using you, the expertise of your therapists to build the skills and knowledge of other people who were working with Alex like teachers and, and uh, additional assistants and so on. Um, but you also talked about coaching. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, so coaching for us has been about building my capacity but also the capacity of our family so when we have therapy sessions we always make sure that we're very involved so typically it's me so I'm always very involved and you know it might look like 20% of that time the therapist is actually working with Alex or doing something with Alex and a lot of the time is actually spent explaining to me what they're doing so I guess a bit about the science about why they're doing things because I personally find that if I understand the reason behind it, mm-hmm. it helps me to like, I guess firstly, it gets my buy-in <laughs> to following through on doing it, but it helps me to be able to apply that in our everyday life. But coaching for us has looked like in-person sessions where we've gone with Alex to the therapy appointment and um, they've demonstrated something or you know, they've um, shown me and then I've done that with Alex and then they've provided some um, advice around that. But now that we've moved to Queensland and there is a really long wait list, like everywhere. Um, so we continue to use our therapists that are based in Sydney. And actually one of our therapists went on maternity leave and moved to Western Australia and we still continue to see her. And how it looks is that the sessions are just with me and we do them even when Alex is at school. So, you know, we set our goals. They might bring a resource to the session. So we're doing a um, social thinking program. So they bring along one of the books. They talk to me about the books. They talk to me about some of the resources that they're going to send me that week to work on with Alex. And we go through that. I'm able to ask questions. I also bring along to that session. So I'm always, um, I love taking notes and I usually take notes and you know make points of things during the week so you know it could be maybe there was an incident at school with friendships or you know something we're trying to work on like around handwriting so we also do a handwriting program um, via telehealth and I use that as an opportunity to just troubleshoot and brainstorm with my therapist So I guess that's how I really value the expertise of my therapist and being able to just have them to draw upon and just talk about what's been happening, troubleshoot, brainstorm, put together a plan and then um, put that into action and then just come back for some, some feedback. Yeah, that's yeah. worked well with us, but I've also done it with my kids as well, and that's been really nice. So, um, in particular with our psychologist, 
my um, my other two children have gone along to sessions without Alex and the psychologist. I think it helped them to understand a little bit about more about disability and and why there might be certain things that you know happen in our in our family life that then that and not quite understanding but they've also shared with them strategies on how they can support themselves but also support Alex and given them some coaching to do to um, navigate some tricky situations as well and that's been really helpful yeah yeah it sounds truly um, focusing on uh, the needs of your whole family absolutely Mm. Thanks for explaining that, um, Stacey. It makes it much clearer for me. I, I heard you earlier talk about peer worker. You mentioned a peer worker. And I know you've been doing some work yourself in terms of peer-led programs. Can you tell us a bit about what that means to you and, and what it looks like? Yes. Peer support is the best. So um, raising a child with a disability or delay can be really overwhelming Um, It can be isolating. I know in our own personal experience, it it can be hard when, you know, even if you've got family and friends and support around you, sometimes you just need those people that can um, understand what you're going through. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot that you can gain from the experiences of other families who have walked that path before you. So, that has been what peer support has been for us. And, you know, peer support doesn't replace professional services and the expertise of of therapists and medical professionals, but it does complement it. And for me, like, I just love having, you know, a group of families that I can go to, you know, whether it's for a recommendation on a service or a therapist or getting tips on how did, you know, how did you navigate the NDIS or get ready for your planning meeting or tips about school. So sometimes it's the really practical things that families, um, you know, you don't, you don't have to recreate the wheel. You can learn from other people's experiences. But I've also really loved through peer support, hearing stories of families that have older children with disability and being able to learn from their experiences and, Um, their wisdom but also just to see what's possible and I love hearing from families whose child might be you know in their 20s and just living a really ordinary but great life in the community with friends living independently and I guess it shows me what's possible and it shows me what's possible for Alex and I love being able to hear those stories but that just learning what are the steps that they took to get there so what were some of the things that they you know learned along the way and with hindsight would they do different so I think yeah I, I was really lucky so I guess I've been able to benefit from peer support um, and then I did first connect with um peers when Alex was um was when I connected with an early intervention organization so Alex was about four years old and through that organization I um joined the team and started to work as a peer worker facilitating parenting programs and peer groups and then eventually doing some project management and through that really started to understand the value of collective knowledge and what it means and how it means that we don't have to reinvent the wheel for every decision that we make as um, parents of children with disabilities. And then, yeah, through that, I then um, went on to lead a peer support organisation that does support families and feel just incredibly lucky that 
not only do I get to learn from these families, but I get to give back and help these families who are earlier on than our family. Yeah, yeah. Well, giving back is certainly what you're doing with us today on, on Family Voices. And I, I share your passion for it, Stacey. I think it's su such important um, opportunity for us all to hear from others who have lived experience that they can share with us. And as you say, we can learn from their wisdom. And uh, thank you for sharing with us about your experience um, Stacey, is there anything else you'd like to, sh to share with us today before we finish up? Um, I guess something I, you know, I reflect on is that when I do share my story and especially because I work in this space now and I know some families might say, you know, and not just me, but other people I know as well, like that, that that's great for you. You probably had some type of training or some skills that mean that you're able to kind of, you know, to support your child in that way. But I guess my parting message is that, and what I hope people also understand from listening today is that like our journey definitely didn't start this way. So although we're in a really, really good place now, and I think we're you know, Alex is thriving. Our supports are working really well for us. We didn't start off like this and it was really hard for us. And I had no prior knowledge, but it was just believing in myself and building my own capacity. So not only through, you know, peer support and therapists, but I really invested in building my own knowledge. And like you would for, you know, in the workplace, you do professional development. I made sure that, you know, there's so many free programs and courses and resources that are out there, but just to build your capacity and just learn about how you can support your child and just to, just, just to start somewhere. And I think um, that, that has been really valuable for us. Yeah. And it sounds like um, hearing from other families has been um, a real impetus for that, but you've also had some really positive experiences with some key professionals along the way. Absolutely. And also hearing from the voices of people with disability. Yeah. And that has been a real, um, that has really changed our narrative and the way we see Alex's future. So yes. being able to hear and not just, you know, those inspirational pieces that you see online about disability, but just hearing stories of real people with disability and, you know, what their life looks like and that they do have a great life. Like it's not, you know, we are no longer, you know, obviously we've got worries, but we're actually really excited by what the future is going to look like for Alex. And we have really big hopes and dreams. And I know that as he gets older, he's going to have, you know, he will have his own vision for his own life. And we're, we're actually excited about what the future brings for him, whatever that might look like. Mm. Stacey, thank you. It's been a real pleasure hearing about that and hearing about your hopes and dreams. And, and I love that you're finishing off by talking about Alex then picking that up as he grows and develops. He'll have his own hopes and dreams for, for the future and, and what, what that will hold for him. So thank you. Um, it's been an enormous pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Kerry. Stacey painted a vivid picture for us of her two very different experiences with early childhood intervention programs. Stacey said that her experience was based on her understanding at the time that more therapy is better. She found it unenjoyable and exhausting 
She reflected that the busy therapy schedule meant that the family was missing out on the usual opportunities for play and interaction in the community, like playgroups. Stacey described her next experience with early intervention in a more positive light. Therapy became something that was enjoyable, involved all the family, and was part of their daily routines and activities. Stacey used words and phrases like family-centred, embedding learning in their daily routine, natural opportunities for learning, incorporating the strengths of their family, building their capacity, and having a partnership with therapists. These elements of early intervention are all part of our national best practice guidelines. The guidelines provide an overview of the latest research and advice on services and supports for young children with a disability or developmental delay. You can find information about the guidelines by going to Early Child Intervention Australia, VICTAS website. And we've provided a link for you in the podcast description below. Stacey also talked about how interested she is in hearing from other families' experiences. She spoke about the role of peer support, where parents can learn from families who have walked the path before. The Association for Children with a Disability is a good place to find out about parent-to-parent supports available in your community. Our Family Voices podcasts is also a way to hear from other families. We aim to bring a range of people's experiences to light so that others can listen and reflect on what that might mean for them and their family circumstances, culture, values and aspirations. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Family Voices. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast app and feel free to leave a review to help us gain more of an understanding of what types of conversations are helpful to you. More information about the podcast can be found on ekiavic.org.au. Until next time, thank you for listening.